Hello and welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles, and joining me this week from across the pond, William Gallagher. Thanks for joining me, William. Hello. Really good to be back saying hi and all these things going on, aren't they? Oh my goodness. You know, usually the summer after WWDC is is a quieter time in the news, but yes. no such thing this year. So much going on. And so let's jump into it. On Thursday of this week, Apple had its earnings call for the third quarter of 2020, and Apple beat Wall Street estimates with a revenue of $59.7 billion for the third quarter of 2020. That overall revenue is up 11% year over year from quarter three of 2019, so pretty incredible performance there. Apple also announced that there will be a four-for-one stock split happening on August 24th of this year. The last time this happened was six years ago, and that was a seven-for-one split. So August 24th, four-for-one stock split. Apple also said that it has achieved the goal of doubling its services revenue. That goal was set in 2016, and they beat that uh, by six months. Apple TV Plus also had 95 award nominations with 25 wins. Tim Cook said that their two-year effort to migrate to Apple Silicon is on track. Apple also said that its September products, which again, the rumors we are hearing might be the iPhone 12 and new iPads, will be available a few weeks later than usual. But overall, an incredibly strong quarter for Apple, again, beating Wall Street estimates. Check out the article in show notes and all the coverage on appleinsider.com for more about the earnings call. Wednesday of this week... There was the antitrust hearing that happened here in the United States where four of the big tech CEOs, namely Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and Sundar Pichai, all had to testify via WebEx, apparently, (laughs) in front of a congressional hearing. And they were basically being asked about, uh, again, antitrust, but about competition, privacy, Asked a bunch of questions, all four of these CEOs, again, that's the CEO of Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, respectively, from what I mentioned before. And some pretty interesting things came out from the hearing. The hearing itself, I was going to watch the thing in its entirety. The recording is up. We'll put a link in show notes to that. But I believe the hearing in total was like five something hours. Yeah. And so I was I was not about <laughs> to watch all that. Did you watch any part of it? I watched about the first three okay. hours. Um, <laughs> I then had a headache the size of Greenland. <laughs> Can you imagine having the power and the authority to order Tim Cook and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Sunday to come to account to yourself? Get them to testify. And then I'm afraid, I think, throw it away by asking them what an app is <sighs> or how Gmail inboxes work and stuff. I, if I were one of those CEOs, I'd be very happy uh, this morning. <laughs> well, all of those CEOs looked unhappy about being there. That's for sure. <laughs> you see any yes. of the pictures. Yes. But it is also, I saw many tweets from people, you know, at least here in America, it would be nice if the officials in government that were making the laws and policies over tech companies, if they knew how the internet worked, it'd be nice to know that they did that. But it always seems like a wasted opportunity whenever, I mean, to have these four CEOs at your disposal, the ability to ask them anything. And it's a shame that not much useful really comes out of it. Honestly, the more interesting bits come from some of the pieces of evidence that came out Mm. during the hearing. So I wanted to touch on a couple of those. Some of these pieces of evidence was was pretty curious. And the first one I wanted to touch on, this is actually an email going back to 2010. 
And this email was from Steve Jobs. We actually got to see one of his emails, and he was discussing with Scott Forstall, Philip Schiller, and they were having a conversation about a specific developer called Joe. I'm not sure the last name, but he was talking about having to write in Objective-C to make an app, and this is going back to iPhone OS 4.0. And this was, a his name is Ron Okamoto, He was talking to this developer saying that Joe sent an email expressing uh, he was upset about some of the App Store policies about code and Objective-C, and that this Joe developer then went to the press and was critical of Objective-C, maybe on social media as well. And Steve Jobs' reply, one line, he tells Ron, I'd suggest we just cut Joe off from now on, end quote. And so... A little humorous just to see that matter-of-factness <laughs> from Steve Jobs again, but brings up the question of, you know, do they cut off developers or suppress developers for those that don't agree? Now, this was an example from literally over a decade ago, so not super useful to judge their policies and practices now, but a more recent example, they actually had an email conversation between Eddie Q and Jeff Bezos. Eddie Q again, uh, one of the executives at Apple, heavily involved in some of the like Apple TV deals and some of those cloud service products. His email to Jeff Bezos was regarding Prime Video. And now this was one of the more telling exchanges because this email is from Eddie Q to Jeff Bezos talking about the conclusions they came to that would allow Amazon to bring Prime Video to iOS and Apple TV. There's a bunch of bullet points in this deal, in this email, supposedly. And again, unknown if this was the final deal that actually came to fruition after all these conversations. But it appears that Apple, via EdiQ, is saying that Amazon will only have to pay a 15% revenue share for customers that sign up for Prime Video using the app and that metadata is provided for Siri and Spotlight Search from the Amazon Prime Video. And Amazon Prime Video will also support the watch such and such in the Apple TV app on Apple TV. And the reason why this is interesting is the 15%, if you're a developer and you have an app in the App Store, have to pay Apple 30% of the revenue share, at least in the first year, if you offer a subscription service in your app on iOS and iPadOS, the first year, it's a 30% revenue share. 30% goes to Apple. The developer takes the rest. Every year after that, it goes down to 15%. But it appears here that Apple is not abiding by that rule for Amazon and allowing them to start at that 15% revenue share and not have the first year at 30%. So again, it appears to maybe be I don't know if you want to call it favoritism or kind of bending the rules for the larger companies on the platform, which again is unfortunate for individual and solo developers uh, that don't have this kind of clout to make negotiations. I think it all raises such interesting questions. I just kind of wanted those questions to be answered at the hearing and they weren't. So we kind of left exactly where we were and it's not coming back. So they've got away with it. I'm... I think I, I I don't know this. It's, I've heard stories over the years of Apple not being the best person to work, best company to work with if you're a supplier. Also, sort of that, that, and those I'm really concerned about. Those seem deeply unpleasant. The App Store and their rules. I'm honestly not that fussed. Uh, I mean, I am a developer. If it didn't do any good for me on the App Store, I wouldn't put it on the App Store. And it's just it's 
here are the rules, here are the decisions, this is what's going to happen for me. And the fact that there are exceptions for somebody as giant as Amazon, well, I mean, I might not like it, but I'd make an exception right. for somebody that big. If I was trying to sell a service to somebody, I, I understand. It, there's no legality uh, making Apple stick to their own rules. It is their way of getting their business running. So it might be unfair, but I don't see anything necessarily uh, objectionably wrong about it. I don't like it, but I completely understand it. And there are other things I, I'm more concerned about. So right. what about you, though? You disagree? Well, so there was an article written by developer Brent Simmons. Uh, you may know of Brent Simmons. He developed the app Net Newswire, mm. And uh, he's been a longtime Apple developer. And he wrote a response to an article uh, written by Ed Hardy an opinion piece saying the app store is fine with its rules. Don't mess with it. And Brent Simmons had a, a lengthy response. I'll put the link to Brent Simmons's article in show notes, but he takes issue with how Apple is framing this idea that they are being over accommodating to developers and that 30% is not a large portion to take. And Brent Simmons is arguing the fact that with the Mac, you can sell your software outside of the Mac App Store and the transaction fees or whatever percentages that uh, get taken from the payment processors is only about 5 to 10% as opposed to Apple's 30%. And developers have that option. You know, if a developer wants to be a part of the Mac App Store, they can submit their app and agree to the 30% cut, or they can sell their product outside the Mac App Store. Now, on iOS and iPadOS, that is not an option. You cannot sideload apps unless you jailbreak your phone. And then there's a bunch of issues with that as far as voiding warranty and all that kind of stuff. Now, Tim Cook makes comparisons and Phil Schiller also in uh, recent weeks has talked about the app store policies saying that the 30% is in line with what other platforms charge for their cut in in-app or app purchases. The issue there or the caveat is that other platforms like Android allow you to sideload apps without breaking warranty or jailbreaking your phones or rooting your phones in Android's case. And so there is actually an option to install third-party apps that you purchase elsewhere. And so to say that, well, it's the same cut as those other platforms, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison. And this is a point that mm. Brent Simmons makes. You know, you can sideload apps on Android. You cannot on iPhone. And Tim Cook also described in the hearing how, you know, before the App Store on iOS, you know, it was difficult to buy software that you had to go to a retail store, buy software in a box. And there was lots of, uh, you know, prof the prices were enlarged because of the way you had to buy it. But again, Brent Simmons makes the argument and other developers, I saw Rogue Amoeba on Twitter making similar arguments that software was able to be purchased on the web directly from a developer since the 90s. You know, this is not something that you had to go to a store and buy it up until the App Store came out. You know, this was a practice that uh, has gone back a long time. Again, Brent Simmons is saying, you know, 30% is what it's going to be, fine, but don't keep saying that, well, it's in line with other things. And before the App Store, it was very difficult to sell apps. Like, it's that's not the case. And Brent Simmons also makes the comparison with a grocery store because Ed Hardy uses this illustration that if you want your product on a shelf in a grocery store, you might have to profit share with the grocery company like Kroger here in America, at least. And he's saying, look, that's not the case with the iOS app store, because with grocery stores, there are multiple grocery stores you can go to. And you can also 
offer to sell your product directly from your website, and also if you want to put it on Amazon. And that, again, is not the case with iOS apps. You have exactly one way to get iOS apps to your users, and that is through the App Store, and Apple controls that entirely. To be fair, though, the whole grocery store example, I don't have to worry whether my local grocery store is secure than the one after it or not. I, right. I have a lot a lot of time for Brent. I think he's a remarkable programmer, and I just like the guy in our email conversations, but it sounds like I'm going to disagree with him. I don't disagree with him. I see his point. I'm just, it's just curious that for a long time, he worked for the Omni Group, mm-hmm. and um, by chance, I, I was talking with similar issues ages ago with uh, Ken Case, who is one of the founders of the Omni Group, and was at the time Brent was there. And Ken was pointing out that he well remembered the days of uh, pre-iOS App Store, pre-Mac App Store, and that when he was trying to get out their software in boxes into stores, you would be lucky to get back 30% of the price because of the store, the shelf, the publisher of the the literature for it the truck driver who delivered it and all that stuff 30 percent was good so to him at the when we were talking about this some years ago online delivery was great now the omni group does let you uh buy directly from them and i always recommend that you do because they do particularly good deals with it and things mm-hmm. but all of this escapes uh, ignores rather the fact that back in the day you had to know the software existed. And I know we had magazines that were telling us, but that was nowhere near as prevalent as online stuff is now. I couldn't, if I needed uh, a to-do app, <laughs> I couldn't pick up the latest issue of Mac user or something and know that there would be an answer in there. Right. I would have to go searching. And the searching was not good. So yeah, I completely accept the comparisons and that stuff. But Apple, I think, did transform mm. uh, software and made it easier to find as well as to get. Right. The last piece I'll pull from Brent's article specifically, and then we'll go back to some of the comments from the hearing. He addresses that privacy and security issue with the App Store. He praises Apple for really spearheading and kind of being the front runner in protecting its users from malware and viruses on on all their platforms, but especially on mobile devices. But he does say what they have built in their platforms to protect from nefarious apps is really a part of the sandboxing and security measures in the iOS and iPadOS operating systems themselves. And while they do filter apps through the App Store, uh, a lot of it is you know, to make sure that the app is adhering to App Store guidelines. And if there is something nefarious the app is trying to do, Apple will most likely stop it on the device because of sandboxing and things like that. And so he feels like that argument about the app store is really there for security is a little bit moot because of what their platforms do to apps. So he has some very interesting takes. You know, listeners, if you have some thoughts on it, mm. uh, would love to hear. Again, tweet at William or I uh, your thoughts on this. But a couple other things, unfortunately, not got straight answers on this or much else. But to pull out a couple other answers that we heard from Tim Cook and the other CEOs, Representative Ken Buck asked about forced labor as far as the manufacturing of products. And Tim Cook addressed this directly. He's one of the few kind of direct answers we got from the CEOs. But Tim Cook said, quote, let me be clear, forced labor is abhorrent and we would not tolerate it in Apple, said Tim Cook, end quote. So he did address that specifically. Some of the more interesting non-answered questions, and I'll do this one from... Again, this question was addressed towards Tim Cook as well. Representative Joe Negus, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he asked if Apple's prohibiting of copycat apps applies to the company itself. And this might go to 
the long history of Apple Sherlocking. We've talked about that term before on the show, but kind of building a feature into the OS or building an app that really kind of does what another third-party app was already doing. One of the earliest examples of this was like the flashlight. I remember there was millions of flashlight apps on iPhone to just use the flash as a flashlight. And Tim Cook said that he would follow up with the congressman's office on an answer for that. So a non-answer. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How many times did we hear that? And yeah, uh, I'm not just from Cook. I mean, from all of them. Yeah. I would be happy to look into this further. Right. <laughs> and, uh, would you? Right. <laughs> and another non-answer from that. And this, this was something that I've seen different manufacturers slam Amazon for this, that Amazon really closely creates a product or line that resembles very much a another product that's selling on its platform. A specific example I remember is the Away suitcase brand. Yeah, the Away suitcases, I actually have one personally. They're great suitcases. They were some of the first that had like batteries that you could put in as a part of the suitcase to charge your devices on the go and make them removable for TSA. Hmm. And I remember that after Away uh, went up for sale and you could have buy it on Amazon, that there were some very, very similar looking products directly from Amazon's basic brand that you could buy that looked almost exactly like the Away suitcases. Uh, didn't have all the features, wasn't as high quality as the Away company said, but it looked like they were just trying to copycat at a lower price to steal business from Away. And so this question was asked by Representative Jayapal during the hearing towards Jeff Bezos, asked, quote, does Amazon ever access or use third-party seller data when making business decisions. And unfortunately, I think this quote, this question is not phrased very well. If they tried to ask other questions later about, you know, do you uh, directly try to copycat products and things like that? And Jeff Bezos' answer was this, quote, I can't answer that question yes or no. What I can tell you is we have a policy against using seller-specific data to aid our private label business, but I can't guarantee that policy has never been violated, end quote, which is a blatant non-answer and pretty, pretty ridiculous to not even address it at all. Basically just saying, can't answer yes or no as the CEO of the company. I mean, I have a problem with any question that says, give me a yes or no answer. Usually, it, you know, a really complex issue. Uh, if you let somebody say more than yes or no, you know they're going to try to hide. But when you say yes or no, uh, what it tells me is actually you don't care what the answer is. Whichever one they're going to say, you've got a, a rebuttal for it. You're going to try to pin them down on something. You are not asking a question to find out an answer. You're asking a question to make a political point. So as much as I loathe the, we'd be happy to follow this up, I detested <laughs> all the yes or no stuff. That's like, I got quite angry during this. Can you hear it to me? I'm sorry about this. It's embarrassing. I almost wish, and this would never happen, but they should put some either tech journalists or pundits, get Walt Mossberg or David Pogue or somebody, you know, in the room to actually ask better questions and to really press and to know how to ask questions to really press for answers. The hearing ended with this comment, and this is from Representative Cicilline, I believe, the last name, but they said, quote, this hearing has made one fact clear to me. These companies as they exist today have monopoly power. Some need to be broken up. All need to be properly regulated and held accountable, end quote. He said, quote, we need to ensure the antitrust laws first written more than a century ago work in the digital age, end quote. And doesn't that sound sensible and <laughs> right and proper and yet also without question 
written before the hearing. Right. This was not an investigation. This was a standing up, making a few points. The committee's already decided whatever it's going to decide. So surely there's something I liked in the whole three hours I watched. There was a nice crack about conspiracy uh, arguments. I quite enjoyed that one. But <laughs> yes, other than that, not a good night. For what was me. the what was the conspiracy? Point. Basically, I forget him because you tune him out instantly. I <laughs> uh, went on the anti-political anti, uh, uh, bias thing from everybody. Everybody's against everything. And the next person, I've forgotten her name, woman came in, we had an actual question and said, well, basically, to get back to antitrust and away from conspiracy theories, and then she went into what she actually wanted. And there's this explosion behind her of uh, angry chat. It was very schoolboy reactions yeah. to... The only bit of wit in the entire process. Right, right. There are lots of links to our coverage of the antitrust hearing, and I'll put a link to Brent Simmons' article talking about it as well. You can go to the links in show notes for all those articles. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. We've all had times where we wanted to search for something online and not have it be tracked. And you might be thinking that you can use incognito mode or private window in Safari and that will somehow hide your activity. But no matter what mode you use in your web browser or no matter how many times you try to clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home and when I'm traveling or working somewhere, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon, Comcast, or Spectrum. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. But ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet service provider can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the times, I don't realize ExpressVPN is even on. I've literally gone days and it's just running in the background. I'm connected to the VPN and I have no idea that it's running. It doesn't slow down my browsing at all. I can stream video, load images, do everything I would normally do, but I'm protected by ExpressVPN. It's so easy to use. You open the app and tap one button and it just runs seamlessly in the background. And it's available on all your devices, your iPhone, your iPad, your Mac, your computers, even your smart TV. So there's no reason why you can't be using it today. So protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this show. Now, also this week, Apple released a new tab in the App Store app on your devices. And so if you update that App Store app on your phone and iPad, uh, there's actually a new For You tab where they uh, basically try to get you to buy more stuff for your devices. <laughs> but it is actually useful in some senses. It actually has all the devices connected to your iCloud account in that tab. If you're wanting to know what your trade-in value might be, you used to have to go to Apple's website, put in your serial number, and then they'll give you a um, price on that on what the trade-in value might be. Now, you can go to that tab directly and see what the approximate trade-in value would be if it's in good condition right there. You don't have to put in any information, so that's kind of useful. It also tells you if you're eligible for an upgrade, like on your iPhone, and you can tap on your devices and see 
what accessories would go directly with that device uh, from that tab. So pretty interesting. Did you have any chance to play with that tab at all or buy a new iPad? Well, weirdly, I actually missed, even though it's on Apple Insider and has been uh, what quite a while now. So anyway, when you mentioned to me that you're looking at it, I went to check, why isn't it on mine? And for some reason, it hadn't automatically updated. So I hit update and I've been playing with it since. And I'm it nearly got me to buy an Ember 295 milliliter <laughs> temperature control <laughs> mug two. Right. What's the difference between one and two? But it's £99.95. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just going to boil a kettle more often. Right. But I was re- I didn't, very tempted. For yes. It does have a recommended for your devices uh, a section. But yes. I will say the Ember mug, mm-hmm. we have version one. Oh. Because uh, I actually got it for my wife for Christmas last year. Because as we have three kids, my wife will have to deal with what they're doing sometimes, and the coffee can cool uh, as she is trying to deal with them. And so I thought, let me try the Ember mug. And so she's been using it for almost a year now and actually really enjoys it. Brilliant. It keeps the coffee, yes, keeps the coffee hot uh, for at least, you know, about 20 to 30 minutes, and you put it on there to charge. We have the first version. The Ember Mug 2 apparently lasts a little longer. Battery is, I guess, a little better on it. But uh, yes, it is a ridiculously expensive coffee mug, but also pretty cool. So (laughs) if you get tempted again, I I will attest to the product. It does what it says. So that's interesting. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. Stop it now. I'm going (laughs) to... I I tell you, in return, I have not bought this myself for a very key reason. There is a kettle Uh uh, which you can uh, start up using your iPhone and it will text you back when it's boiled and you can do all sorts of settings and things. (laughs) It's a couple of hundred dollars, a couple of hundred pounds. The reason, apart from just I like my kettle as it is, the certainty that I would tap on my iPhone and get that kettle to boil with no water in it. Oh. Yeah, I would destroy it. Yes. So, <laughs> That's true. I will say, too, when, when we first got the Ember mug, as soon as we took it out of the box and, and downloaded the app, it said it required a firmware update. And I have to say, to live in a world where your coffee mug requires a firmware update, <laughs> it's a little troubling. Uh, so that... <laughs> It gave me a second of pause to think, maybe this isn't the answer. I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, so another piece of news that came out this week, CES, the big technology show that happens in Las Vegas every year, is canceled. The in-person event is not going to be happening. They'll have an all-digital experience. I know Andrew has been to CES several times, but uh, no in-person event in January of 2021. Have you ever had the opportunity to go to a CES? I was denied oh. the opportunity, and I'm not sure whether to. Well, I've started now. Uh, can I just say this was actually it was on a PC title uh-huh. back when I was foolish enough and I used PCs. <laughs> nothing to do with Apple Insider, nothing to do with this person or anything, and it was a considerable number of years ago. But I was told I was about the only journalist out of a, quite a substantial team that would not be allowed to go to the show because. I don't drink. What? And it was considered a waste of all of the free alcohol what? that these various companies know. I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed even saying this to you, but it was true. God, back in the day, hey, we lived it up, or apparently everybody else but me. Oh, did. my God. So I've never been. So You were robbed. <laughs> I will say it for you. You were robbed of not being able to go. Now, I, uh, I've not been either. Yeah, maybe not robbed, but... I have a question for yes, you. Yes. Yeah, let's build up to this, though. I would love to go at least once. I've never been to CES, and so I would like to go at least once in my lifetime to to experience it. Now, I have read from many tech journalists that go every year that after a few times, it does become quite a slog, and it is like, why do we still go to this? And so maybe 
this, maybe this is the end. <laughs> maybe they do it all digital and you know, well, discover yeah. it's better. But I just wanted to go to experience it once. That's all. So many great things were announced at CES that never come out. Right. So occasionally I'll look at last year's CES coverage just to see if anything did. But other than that, no. I mean, I get the the spirit of it and the technology is interesting for it, but I just feel like so much of it is is never going to happen or never quite happen. Everything uh, announced at CES was HomeKit compatible soon and half of it wasn't, <laughs> for example. I think. So it's just, I, I'm, I'm concerned that it will stay on online because uh, I think it is a big event and it's the last one really, isn't it, of all the technology shows. So I hope it comes back and survives, but I have no intention of going, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, and who knows? Maybe uh, it won't return this year again. It'd be interesting to see what happens after this digital CES and also with Apple Keynotes after their, you know, pre-produced Keynote. I'm not sure if we if we discussed that specifically, but how did you like the pre-produced Keynote as opposed to watching the like a live stream of the live event? I thought they did it superbly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a, a scriptwriter and dramatist and I, I'm one foot in entertainment, one foot in uh, arts and I th- excuse me, arts and technology, and I thought they did an utterly remarkable job. I, I thought there was a lot of times when uh, they had kind of Zoom-itis where uh, the presenters were clearly not quite focused on us. They were reading auto cues and things. Right, right. There's one called Beth uh, who's on the Safari team. I'm sorry, I've forgotten her surname. She, Kevin Lynch from Apple Watch... And somebody else were really strong on this, very clearly talking just to us, but most of the rest, including Tim Cook and Craig Federici, were just slightly off, I thought. And that, that was the smallest thing, but it did bother me throughout. Everything else, the pacing, the the speed of information, everything, yeah. just you would swear they'd done it a lot. So whoever their production team was, they were astounding, I thought. Uh, I loved it so much. I'd be very happy if they did that again next year, but I like the way they used to do it. Where do you fall? I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it is different not hearing people's reactions, like hearing applause and hearing all that kind of stuff. I think it would be unfortunate for them to announce a like a big product like, you know, when the Mac Pro redesign came out a year or two ago, you know, to hear the reaction from the crowd. You know, it's nice to be able to experience that. But, you know, when it comes to WWDC, uh, I've heard lots of positive feedback from developers that they enjoyed the sessions pre-produced how they were. Mm. Sessions didn't have to be 30 minutes or an hour to kind of fit the conference-style feel. If they had 15 minutes of information, it was a 15-minute session, and they enjoyed uh, being able to just watch those uh, little bits. And, uh, you know, I thought they did excellent producing it. And, you know, if they do their software announcements that way or different kind of announcements that way, I think it was great. Interested to see how they do it going forward. And I'm sure all the journalists that would normally fly just for that one keynote, you know, and, and several sessions to report on it might be more convenient to just watch them from home like they did this year. But yeah, that actually is the one I would like to fly to go to see. I would too. <laughs> yeah. I would love to go to the uh, team. Beth Dakin, by the way. Sorry, I remembered the name Dakin. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. Beth Dakin, I thought she was particularly good in it. Yes. But sorry, yeah. Uh, especially to go see it in the Steve Dobbs theatre and that gorgeous architecture yes 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 i would like to go see that yes. i'm with you on there yeah you and me let's pop hey over. i would yes in a heartbeat i would love to do that and while we're there you can give me your ipad there we <laughs> very good very good keep asking you that yeah yeah slowly uh the long con gaslighting me into uh <laughs> giving it away my <laughs> uh, last bit of news wanted to cover again the rumors about the iphone 12 and new ipads continue to swirl and change at uh, the latest this was a john prosser tweet and this, he was saying that the iPhone 12 and new iPads will come in October. And so, you know, there were rumors that maybe there'll be a September 5th event, which there still could be. 
They could announce things in September, release in October. Uh, The entirety of the tweet was this from John Prosser, iPhone 12, new iPads, October. That's the tweet. So we'll see again uh, when they'll actually come out. Obviously curious, I think more how they announce these things like we were just talking about. Will it be a pre-produced keynote or will it be, I can't imagine they would do just a press release for the iPhone 12. So curious. Uh, how they'll do that, as I'm sure mm. uh, it won't be in an in-person crowd event. Weirdly, of all the stories about when it's happening, it never occurred to me that it wouldn't be a normal one. But of course, we're in much the same position as we were. No, I'm re- oh, yeah, that's going to be really interesting. You're that right. would be. I, I have to imagine it'll be a pre-produced event like WWDC. I mean, there's no way uh, it would just be a press release. Maybe for a new iPad, considering it was just refreshed a few months ago, but but not for the iPhone. You know, surely that, that'll be a, a pre-produced. So that'll be interesting to see, a pre-produced iPhone event. Well, I wanted to round out the show uh, talking about task managers and to-do apps. You know, every once in a while we cover a specific category of apps or services. And listeners, if you would like to hear a specific app category or like a top three or five of apps in a specific category, tweet at me. Ask Stephen Robles. I'd love to hear it and we can do it on the show. But this made me think of this one because Do, the popular app for task management, completely redesigned their Mac app. And so Do, you can get it on all your platforms, iPhone, iPad, and Mac. And, and they had a big redesign on Mac. It's a very nice app. I know it's used by many and the new Mac app looks beautiful, but it is not the one that I actually use. And I have a used many. I have a chronic issue of whenever one updates, I just want to try it and I'll move my entire process over to there, try it for a while, and then do something else. But I've stuck with one for a while. I've tried Todoist. I've tried OmniFocus. I've tried built-in reminders, but I'll leave the one that I use uh, as a mystery because you said you had strong feelings about task managers. I'd like to know why. Oh, do I? Well, I mentioned to you because you said that you were going to ask about this, and you, you actually rattled off a few, and I, I don't know where, why you're saying any of these, because it's only OmniFocus. That's oh, the only one. Okay. I don't know, what are the rest? Forget it. <laughs> I guarantee, I can tell, because I've used so many like you, and I've even written a lot about these, I bet the one you're using is Things. Yes? William? Yes? I don't want to admit it, but you're exactly right. That is, a, <laughs> that is the one I use. But now I want to know, why did you pinpoint Things uh, for my use case? Well, partly it's the biggest one you didn't mention. Yeah, sure. Partly because uh, as very, very good as Todoist uh, is, it seems to me as an Apple user that uh, Things and OmniFocus are, are at the top of the pile. Right. I also, I think Things has the best name. Yeah. I mean, it's such a good name. And aesthetically, I think Things looks gorgeous, but it's lacks some of the things that are so useful to me in OmniFocus that every time I've tried to go over to it, I've just got really frustrated and I've ended up not moving. I've ended parallel running and then realizing after a bit, I'm not looking in things because it doesn't have a, re- a review function for a start. With that, I began a bit picky there. You clearly don't need a review function. No, I you haven't got one. The way my mind works is once a task is completed, I never want to think about it again. So I, I, I never review anything. But to your point, you know, OmniFocus, I, I've purchased it, you know, I've purchased the upgrades, I have the latest, uh, and I could use it. And again, OmniFocus is incredibly powerful. It's an amazing app. You know, if you've never checked it out, and you're, especially if you're in business for yourself, maybe you have many clients. Again, if you're managing multiple projects, and you have some templates maybe for tasks that you enjoy using. OmniFocus is incredible. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more of, of how you use it, William. But for me, for some reason, 
I like my task and reminder app to be as aesthetically pleasing as possible. And it's just a thing, you know, I'm not this way with other apps, but for some reason, I just, I like my task app to be really, really well designed. And I find things, like you said, to be one of the most beautiful and good looking apps on all devices, Mac, iPhone, and all that. I think in the past year, you know, they upgraded to things three and I love everything about it. It has just enough uh, intricacies and power. Like you can create groups and you can create projects within groups and you can do subtasks within tasks. And I, I need all those features and I, and I enjoy those. It does have a logbook now and the logbook does show your completed tasks. It's not as powerful as OmniFocus's review feature, but you can look at your, your previous tasks that way. I have tried reminders. And again, if you do not use a task app, first of all, let me highly recommend you do uh, to keep track of everything <laughs> that you do. Uh, you know, reminders has become more powerful and uh, it's nice that you can now organize in folders and groups and they've changed the iconography and it looks nice. Uh, so reminders, again, if you have Apple devices, it's, you already have it. It's free. I recommend trying that. Uh, if you want to try a third-party app, just to some simple reminders do, which I mentioned that redesign their Mac app. It's a beautifully designed app. It is powerful, but it does not have like the groupings and project types of management that I really like to use, like things and OmniFocus and even reminders. So, so do would be great for, for that kind of next step after reminders. Uh, but I just enjoy things. I like how I can incorporate my calendar events in the top of my today view and all that. Uh, but I do see that OmniFocus is the powerhouse when it comes to project management and tasks. So, so tell me how a little bit how you use it, William. Uh, right. How long have you got? <laughs> I, <laughs> you just go. I do. Like I, I really admire things for the look and the aesthetics of it, but that does not mean I think OmniFocus is ugly. I actually think no, no, they're no. both really good apps. It's just for me, OmniFocus. I thought it's really interesting when you were talking about review there, because last night I was listening to um, Rosemary Orchard on a podcast called Nested Folders, talking about the review process and how she looks back over the last week and things. And I was truly surprised because I've not once used review to look back. I only do it to look forward. What's left on my plate? I mean, the thing I love about these is something comes up, I get an idea, I'm asked to do something, I know, just throw it in OmniFocus and I can forget about it. And I will see it if I've put a deadline on it or something or during this review process. In the review process, you look at all your projects, you go through and think, yeah, I've done that, done that. But then haven't done this. What else do I need to know? And things like this. And you kind of plan out what you're going to be doing next. And it never occurred to me that uh, review means looking backwards right but as it is <laughs> when you start out using this sort of thing it's very nice you do review once a week of all your projects and then after a bit i mean i have something like 60 different projects going on at the time and it's around 3,000 tasks that are usually in the air and you can't handle those properly but omnifocus will let you pick when you're going it omnifocus steps you through reviewing to make sure that you do it if i had things I could sit there and go through every project and every task and make decisions, but I'd be interrupted halfway and I wouldn't know where I'd got to. OmniFocus will say, right, you've reviewed this, this, and this. You've got these 30 left to go. Um, and it will let me say, I only want to review. I was one client I work for once a month. I don't need to see that task every day. I'll check it every week or something. I, I frame my work around it. And I, I like the idea that I go into OmniFocus first thing in the morning, see the shape of the day, and then I check it at the end of the day as well and see how I got on. I don't have to be constantly in and out. Totally trust OmniFocus to remember what I need and to remind me of 
Well, actually, I was going to say to remind me of things when I need to do. I think I realised calling them to-do apps isn't right. Uh, OmniFocus is a can-do app in a way. Because if I've got 10 minutes waiting for a train, you know, back when we used to have train rides, I can look at OmniFocus and get it to tell me across these 60 projects, uh, uh, which ones have phone calls? Because I can just knock off a few phone calls and get them done. Mm. Which ones have emails? Or I'm uh, in my local supermarket, what's the things I need to get from that store and not that store? Uh, The degree of detail you can get into an OmniFocus. I mean, I had a problem with it a few weeks ago. Something wasn't sinking and it felt like my arms were chopped off until the very, very good OmniFocus support people <laughs> figured out what I'd done uh, and see. put me right. Interesting. Now, let me ask you this, because the one thing that I don't like about things is I want badges on my to-do app because it tells me that there's something I need to do today. Hmm. But if I put a task that is due today, the badge appears right at the beginning of the day. So as soon as I wake up, there's a badge, even if it's a task that is literally for the afternoon, you know, if it's specifically for 4 p.m. Now with OmniFocus, A, do you use badges? And B, is it so that the badges only appear at the time a task is due or does it appear like all day, regardless of the due time? Well, actually, let me just, I do use a badge. Let me open this up. Uh, As I look at this, now it's telling me I have five things left to do around now, and, and there's a sixth that's this evening. So it's not due now, it's coming soon. Uh, so I have, yeah, it's a bit more finer control. And so your badge only says five and it leaves off the sixth. Yeah, I mean, at some point soon, the sixth will kick in and appear. I think, I'm trying to look at this. You know, you get so used to something. I'll tell you one thing, okay, I don't like about OmniFocus. If I put in a task for uh, today, uh, I, I can say what time I want, but if I don't say a time, it'll put in uh, 8 a.m. At some point, I think I must have set that as a default, right. but there is always a default. And there are times when the time does not matter to me, the day does, and I'd like to be able to just have that somewhere. Oh, okay. but, you know. That's interesting, yeah, because that is something in things you can put, you know, do on this day, but leave off the time. And then when you go to your today view, it, it talks about it all, but... But very interesting. Yeah, we, we could talk maybe or more in depth in the future about our, our apps. But check out links to all those apps and show notes. And if you have a favorite task app or to-do app, maybe we didn't mention it or you have strong feelings about it, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. You can tweet at William and myself. Our Twitter handles are in the show notes. You can also comment on the post. You can email us. All those links are in the show notes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, be on the lookout this Monday, not only for a new episode of HomeKit Insider, but we're actually going to have a special episode of the Apple Insider podcast. We actually have developer, CEO, and founder of Rogue Amoeba, Paul Kafasis. We actually did an interview with him where he comments on some of the antitrust hearing information that came out and some of Apple's App Store policies, platforms. It's a great interview. Check it out this coming Monday. That episode will be coming in the Apple Insider podcast feed. Also, let us know whatever you thought about the antitrust hearings, about the iPhone 12 event, the App Store for you. Maybe if you have an Ember mug, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. (laughs) And also, if you haven't gotten a chance yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. That'll help us be discovered by more people looking for Apple news, tips, and all that. So if you could give us a five-star rating and review there, we'd appreciate that. And don't forget to check out 
the other podcast on appleinsider.com, HomeKit Insider, comes out every Monday. Andrew O'Hara and myself discuss HomeKit devices, the latest news, reviews, some of our home projects we've done with HomeKit. We even discussed a HomeKit laser tripwire on the latest episode. One of our listeners put together a laser tripwire that is HomeKit compatible. So we also talked about HomeBridge on the last episode. I talked about setting that up. Would appreciate if you check out that show. You can search for HomeKit Insider in your podcast app of choice or go to the link in show notes and subscribe there. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.